0: On the 11th of June, 1727, George Augustus became King George II of Great Britain and Ireland. and He commissioned the composer George Frederick Handel to write some appropriate music for his coronation service. So Handel set to work and he composed four anthems for choir and orchestra to perform at this coronation service. Handel did such a good job that the anthems have been used at every coronation since King George II, including the queens 69 years ago. Now the most famous of these anthems is called Zadok the Priest, it's a fantastic thing to sing. You get this gradual orchestral start, and it builds up and builds up and builds up until the choir come in, and it's pretty much both barrels to the end. Trumpets, timpani, the lot, going for it all the way through. It's grand. It's extrovert. It's joyful. Everything a coronation anthem should be. The coronation of a monarch is an exciting and grand occasion. It's a statement in public of the importance and status of the new king or queen. During the ceremony of the king or queen, they're they're dressed in this regalia of the monarchy and they sit on this special coronation chair. They're given an orb that represents their Christian sovereignty over the earth. They're given a, a scepter that represents their power and a rod with a dove on the top that represents their justice and mercy and balance to their power and then the archbishop of canterbury crowns the new monarch and there are trumpet fanfares and shouts of acclamation from the congregation god save the king god save the queen all that sort of stuff the second half of luke chapter 3 describes a brief but very important moment right at the outset of jesus's public ministry and that's his coronation. It's unlike any other coronation before or since. It didn't happen in a grand building in in front of other royalty, world leaders and VIPs. No famous composer wrote anthems for it. The archbishop wasn't officiating. No one in the vicinity was really expecting it. In fact, the king was unrecognized in the crowd. Yet this coronation is as important now as it was then. See, King George II, he's well and truly dead. He has no influence over our lives whatsoever, except the fact that we can enjoy his coronation anthems. But King Jesus, he's on the throne now, and he's ruling and reigning. Before we go any further, I want to look at how Luke deals with Jesus' baptism. It's different to the other accounts we read in Matthew and Mark. It's the shortest of them all. And it leaves out details such as where the baptism took place and who baptised Jesus. I think Luke is separating the beginning of John's ministry from, from Jesus for a really important reason. He's already told us about John's imprisonment. And the reason for this is is that John's role is transient. Jesus is preeminent. Luke wants to make sure that we're focusing our attention on Jesus and no one else. John said himself, he must increase, but I must decrease. There's a national movement going on. Luke tells us that the people were baptised We need to understand that in the context of the first 20 verses of the chapter. There were people in particular, like the Pharisees and the scribes, that weren't baptised, but a great number had come forward and were baptised. It's the prepare your heart for God movement, and it was literally making waves. On this particular day, Jesus was in the crowd, the crowd of people that had come to John to be baptised. Jesus didn't look... Out of the ordinary in terms of his physical appearance. He just blended in with the ordinary people in the cloud. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we'd look at we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him, says Isaiah 53. It's another reminder to us that God does extraordinary things right in the middle of the ordinary. And this crowd of people, we're going to see something extraordinary. Why did Jesus get baptised? Doesn't the water of baptism signify the need to be cleansed? Jesus was spotless, wasn't he? As we just saw a little bit earlier on in Luke, that in his circumcision and, and when he was redeemed as firstborn male, he's identifying with us. It's, he's signifying that it's, he's come to take on our sin. Isaiah 53 again, but he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. So we're going to look at this passage under four headings. The first three are based in the first two verses, 21 and 22, and they are communion, coronation, and commissioned. And then fourthly, the final verses, we're going to look under the name Credentials. So first, communion. Luke tells us that Jesus was praying when he was baptised. Right at the very outset of his public ministry, Jesus was in prayer. This is a critical component of Jesus' ministry. As you read further on in Luke, you read of Jesus praying at key moments during his ministry. His prayers were so powerful that the disciples asked him how to pray and he gave us the model prayer the Lord's prayer whilst there are many instances of public prayer most of Jesus's prayers were made in private he withdrew to the wilderness or he went up to a mountain to pray he encouraged his disciples to pray always and not lose heart we'll come back to prayer but something to notice before we move on Jesus prayed before he did anything. At this point, he's not said anything in public. And it's clear that prayer is essential. If Jesus required to be in regular communion with his Father, how much more do we need it? How proactive are we in our prayer life? Do we pray at the beginning of the day for God to help us and guide us and and as we go along the day? Or only when we hit a problem? and need to find a way out I read a, a quote from a, a preacher in America called Alistair Begg he says this in our Christian pilgrimage there is arguably nothing more important or more difficult to maintain than a meaningful prayer life but here is help Sovereignty. the power of the other kingdoms will be destroyed by the kingdom of the son These earthly kingdoms are urged to submit to this king. Pay homage to him. And the ones that pay homage to him and take shelter will be blessed. God the Father is saying that his son is the all-conquering king whose kingdom is everlasting, whose power is such that all who shelter in him will have protection. All outside his protection will face his wrath the unquenchable fire that John the Baptist spoke of when proclaiming the message earlier on in this chapter listen to the first words of Hebrews long ago God spoke to the ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways in these last days he has spoken to us by his son God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my Son. Today I have become your Father. The Father's next words, In you I am well pleased. These come from Isaiah chapter 42. The father Father has already established Jesus is king of kings. His throne is eternal and ultimately he'll crush all his adversaries. He now speaks of his earthly ministry. What's that going to look like? Isaiah 42, it's it's a glorious passage. This is what it says about Jesus. This is what the voice from heaven wants us to know about the son's work on earth. This is my servant, I strengthen him, this is my chosen one, I delight in him, I have put my spirit on him, he will bring justice to the nations, he will not cry out or shout or make his voice heard in the streets, he will not break a bruised reed and he will not put out a smoldering wick, he will faithfully bring justice, he will not grow weak or be discouraged until he has established justice on earth. The coasts and islands will wait for his instruction. See, despite the awesome power of the Son, his ministry on earth will be renowned for its gentleness. As the Holy Spirit descending as a dove moments before depicted, he will not lack power, but his ministry will be that of healing and restoring. So the bottom line is this, is that God the Father is, Endorses Jesus personally as King of Kings and has equipped him by the Holy Spirit for his ministry on earth. There is no doubt in heaven that this King will execute the mission. The Father sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. The days of the law and the prophets are over. The, his Son has come. I quoted this um, verse this morning. From Luke 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed and everyone is urgently invited to enter it. Is he your king? Can you say that tonight? Have you taken shelter in the king of kings? Are you in his kingdom? Remember what happens to his adversaries. All who take shelter in him. It's so important that we take shelter in the king of kings. There's something that really struck me when I was reading these verses. We've already seen the importance of prayer at the very outset of Jesus' ministry. But notice what happens when Jesus prays. The heavens split open. The prayer of Jesus goes straight to the throne room of heaven. I think that's a massive encouragement to us when we pray. If you're like me, sometimes you feel like your prayers barely made it out of your mouth, let alone reached heaven. It's a great picture to us that our prayers are actively heard by God. Just as Zechariah had that privilege of burning the incense that signified the prayers of God's people going up to heaven, be assured that your prayers are heard in the throne room of heaven. So fourthly, we come to credentials. Jesus is now around 30 years old, which incidentally is a customary age for entering the office of a of a prophet or, or a priest or a king. And he's now ready for his, miss, his mission. He's been commissioned by the by his father. But if that isn't enough, Luke gives us this lineage to substantiate his claim as Messiah. You see, in the intervening time between last seeing Jesus and now, he is increased in wisdom and stature. Luke uses this really interesting word to describe Jesus's growth in the last verse of chapter 2. It's used to describe the process of working out metal by hammering it out after heating it in the forge. It conveys sort of Advancing against obstacles. It's another pointer by Luke to the humanity of Jesus. He didn't come to this earth and cut corners. He experienced everything. Hebrews explained that he was tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin. And with this in mind, we come to this lineage. Jesus' credentials are perfect. He is a true child of Israel. Now Luke sets this lineage out by starting with Jesus and working his way back. It ascends all the way back to God. If you've read the opening verses of Matthew, you'll know of the lineage written there. And you may have noticed a major discrepancy between the two. See, Matthew's account says that Joseph's father was Jacob. Whereas in Luke's, his father is Heli. So what's going on there? I think we need to understand the emphasis between um, Matthew's gospel and Luke's Gospel. Matthew, Matthew's emphasis is to explain to the Jews that the Messiah had come. And Luke's emphasis was to show the Gentiles, like Theophilus, that the Messiah had come. So the Jewish custom was to trace the lineage through the male side. So Matthew gives us a lineage through Joseph's blood father. Luke, on the other hand, traces human ancestry of of Jesus through the father-in-law of Joseph, Mary's father, Heli. See, Luke wants his readers to be sure that Jesus wasn't a mythical figure. If we've just read what occurred in his baptism... He wants to ground us again. He's stressing to us that that Jesus is a genuine historical figure. And there are three main things I want us to see from this list of names. And the first one is this, that the lineage is universal. Luke links Jesus to God through Adam. See, Jesus' kingship has implications for all of Adam's descendants. Just as the Father's word from heaven took us to Psalm 2, where he's the ultimate descendant of King David, now Luke is reinforcing the link through his physical descendants. In verse 34, we see Abraham's name. In Genesis 22, we have that famous passage of of when God tested Abraham by telling him to sacrifice his son Isaac. Take your son, he said, your only son Isaac, whom you love, Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Abraham does this. And just as Abraham takes the knife to kill his son, he's stopped by the angel of the Lord. Don't lay a hand on him. Now, Ram was provided by God as a sacrifice instead of Isaac. God tells Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. Here's how the nations of the earth are going to be blessed, through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to sacrifice himself in our place. John the Baptist proclaimed, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came for all people. The message of salvation is universal. Secondly, The lineage is a picture of restoration. Adam is called the son of God. And in the original and untarnished creation, we saw Adam have a close relationship with God. It's sometimes called a filial relationship, that sort of relationship between a child and their parent. But this relationship was lost because of the fall. But God's work of restoration began then to bring us back into a relationship with him so we could be restored to sonship. Remember what God said to the serpent in Genesis 3. He passed sentence on him saying this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I think this is why Luke uses the lineage of Mary. It's because through her seed, Jesus Christ, that the serpent's head will be crushed so that we can be restored. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22 says this, For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Thirdly, restoration by Jesus is complete Restoration. I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, have watched at least an episode of The Repair Shop. It seems to be on every time I switch on the telly. But you have uh, various experts who've got different lines of expertise, and they uh, are given an object, depending on what their expertise is, that's broken. Sometimes it turns up in bits in a bag. And they, they do what they can to restore it. It's always so impressive when you see the sorry state of the object at the beginning. This prized possession that's, that's over, the, over the years has gone um, and been broken or whatever it is. And it, comes, it comes back to life after this painstaking work of the experts. They, they seem to be able to make what was sort of nothing and restore it fully back to life. But the object at the end of it may look new but it's not. See, it's been skillfully repaired to look as good as new, but it's not new. See, Jesus, he doesn't repair. He makes new. When Nicodemus came to him at night, Jesus told him this, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can we be made new? Just as John the Baptist proclaimed, Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Baptism baptism of the Holy Spirit is spiritual birth. This is what happens when our sins are forgiven. There's a great verse in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this is why the lineage ascends. Jesus restores our relationship with God. He brings us back to what Adam and Eve enjoyed before the fall. In John's first epistle, he tells us, we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Full restoration will be made new. We've reached the end of a section in Luke now. Jesus is now going public. Luke from now on focuses the rest of his gospel on Jesus' public ministry. He's spent a considerable space um, detailing Jesus' preparation for this earthly ministry. And he's given us some glimpses of, of what it will be like. So as we look back over these chapters, I, I want to remind us of what Luke has carefully revealed to us. Culminating in this passage that we've looked at tonight, a really simple, firstly, Jesus was a real person. Luke firmly and purposely gives us historical details of time, location, political and religious rulers throughout these chapters. He's at pains to ensure that his account is grounded in historical fact so that readers can be in no doubt that Jesus was a real person. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? But Jesus being a real person has been attacked from the very beginning of the church. See, the Apostle Paul, he wrote his, his first epistle to respond to a belief that was becoming more and more prevalent at the time. And it was called Gnosticism. and it basically taught that things that were physical were evil and things that were spiritual were perfect. So they separated the physical from the spiritual. Meaning that when they came to Jesus, they concluded that he couldn't have had a physical body if he was God. In fact, God couldn't have been involved in creating anything physical because of its inherent evil. So Jesus being God, he appeared as a physical being, but he wasn't actually physical. He was actually spirit. Therefore, he couldn't have suffered and died on the cross. So John begins the first epistle saying that he heard him. He saw him. He studied him. He touched him. He can testify that Jesus was a real person. Our world seems to struggle with this fact now. I read a Christian research study recently that stated of the people that they questioned, nearly 50% didn't believe that Jesus was a real historical person. Luke wants us to be absolutely sure that that Jesus was a human being. The whole thing would fall on its face if Jesus wasn't a real person. He's carefully investigated these events so we could be sure. Number two, Jesus is fully God. The angel Gabriel told Mary that Jesus would be called the Son of the Most High. His kingdom will have no end. When Mary visited Elizabeth, Elizabeth cried out to her, Blessed are you among women and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Mary's song begins with this. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. Zechariah speaks of the horn of salvation that's been raised up from the house of David. When the angels appeared to the shepherds and proclaimed Jesus's birth, this is what they said to them. Today in the city of David a saviour was born for you who is the Messiah, the Lord. Simeon praised God and said, my eyes have seen your salvation. Jesus himself, after Mary and Joseph had spent three days looking for him, said, didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? Jesus is truly man And truly God. Lastly, Jesus is King of Kings. Jesus doesn't need a ceremonial orb to represent sovereignty, or a scepter to represent power, or a dove on a stick to represent justice. He was personally crowned and proclaimed as King by His Father in heaven. The Holy Spirit physically came upon him in the form of a dove. So the question tonight is, have you proclaimed Jesus as your king? Is he your king? This is how Psalm 2 ends. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, Luke has been so clear to us that Jesus is fully man and fully God, Lord. We thank you that he is King of kings and he's crowned. um, He's on the throne now, Lord. That we know that he is uh, going to overpower all the, the evil and the sin, Lord, that, that so besets us, Lord, and that we are going to be purified. We're going to be made new. Everyone in Christ is a, a new creation, Lord. And we pray that you would help us to understand that. We pray for those people, um, perhaps here tonight or whom we know, that that's not a reality for them. We pray, Lord, that you would change them that you would help them to see that there's only one king, there's only one ruler, and there's only one way to heaven. Amen. We're going to finish our time tonight by singing, Crown Him with Many Crowns. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Amen.